Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right. Well, we're getting uh, some news that at 3 p.m. Wall Street time today, the CDC will have a, a press conference, presumably some being some reports that perhaps some man, uh, mask mandates will be reintroduced uh, for certain populations. We'll certainly bring that to you later today. But it just shows the long tail of this uh, COVID pandemic, if you will. And there's obviously there's regional differences. But let's get the latest with Bob Langreth, healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News. He's got his big take story today. And Bob, again, the news today about a CDC perhaps uh, reinstating some form of a mask mandate for certain populations. Again, it just highlights this thing ain't going away for a while, is it? Absolutely not. I mean, in U.S. health officials, the CDC is going to be returning. We're reporting to tighter guidelines for the use of masks and we'll be advising later to fully vaccinate individuals wear them in public indoor settings in places where the virus is spreading rapidly. So, yeah, they are going to tighten back and kind of dial back that guidance uh, while still uh, recommending that uh, teachers and students return to school, but wearing masks uh, indoors. That's what reporting, we're reporting. So they're going to kind of dial back from what they said before. But definitely on the worldwide basis, the kind of this, there's been this tendency, uh, we're reporting, you know, to try to want to declare this is over before it's over. And, you know, re- and really, the virus is to some extent in control of this. Uh, and we'll only know when it's over in retrospect. And it's becoming increasingly clear there's going to be a, a, a kind of long tail uh, to this uh, virus pandemic, while the worst may be over in the U.S. and Europe, we're going to be dealing with this, you know, for quite some time to come. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, given them- I mean, it's over for me and Paul because we're fully vaccinated. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the worst that could happen to us, I guess, is the worst that could likely happen to us is we get something that's worse than a cold and better than a hangover. But <laughs> clearly there are billions of people around the world for whom it isn't. And what worries me, Bob, is that the unvaccinated are going to, um, you know, house this thing and allow it to mutate into something that even me and Paul can't fend off. Is that a concern among scientists as well? Well, it's definitely a concern that the longer this 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 virus kind of hangs around and is transmitting on a, you know just a massive scale in so many places, the more chances that gives the virus to continue to mutate uh, into new forms that we haven't seen before. I mean, already this the Delta variant obviously is turning out to be uh, we've kind of kind of underestimated the Delta variant, just how transmissible it is. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of the perfect uh, variant for kind of partly vaccinated world. It can, you know, just keep keep, keep going. This but but just to be clear, Bob, in terms of the Delta variant, I mean, I was out to dinner with some people on Friday who were freaking out about it, but we were all fully vaccinated. I mean, in terms of the vaccinated, it's NBD, right? I mean, if you're vaccinated, NBD, what do you mean? No, no big deal. I mean, if, if, if you're vaccinated, well, so, I, I just yeah, saw a I mean, stat that 99.5% of the deaths are among the unvaccinated. 97% of the hospitalizations are among the unvaccinated. So the Delta variant isn't necessarily um, got a higher case fatality ratio for vaccinated people than the flu. 
Yeah, so the, the case fatality ratio in general for the Delta variant, there were, were some arguments that are, you know, somehow more severe, but I don't think we've seen like any proof of that. Uh, and, you know, more broadly speaking, even though the vaccines efficacy, you know, some early reports in terms of preventing mild cases, and those, those still could be symptomatic, you know, maybe fading, especially the reports out of Israel, what, what's clear across the board is that all the reports are showing the vaccines are still holding strong against preventing severe cases, preventing, yeah. uh, uh, you know, hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, but that doesn't mean that vaccines aren't perfect. They don't prevent, like, everything. But clearly they're, they're way, way better than not having a vaccine. And we're just going to find out in real time, you know, just you know, whether some people need boosters and how long uh, the efficacy lasts. But clearly we need to keep, you know, vaccinating as many people as possible because that will reduce the spread and it'll reduce the chance. But, of you, you know, in terms of the mask mandates, Bob, the concern that uh, that we've been talking about with a lot of guests today is not wearing a mask was the carrot, right? That's why a lot of people got vaccinated because we were sick of wearing these masks. And now if you say, okay, even the vaccinated have to put them back on, that presents a problem in terms of removing the incentive for those you know who are hesitant. Uh, yeah, I guess you could think of it that way. I mean, um, I don't know exactly what the new guidance are going to you know, come up with. I think you know, it sounds like it's going to be something about you know, places where there are just lots of transmission and kind of a mix of vaccinated and unvaccinated. You may want to wear a mask indoors. Uh, but, uh, I mean, yeah, I, mean, I guess it could be that way. But the other way to think of it is this is like you know, one extra step. So the vaccine is kind of like your, your three-point seatbelt. It's kind of the main thing. But maybe you know, in some cases, you know, there's a lot of transmission, and it kind of just may overwhelm the vaccine's defenses. And you might want to add in like a side impact airbag, and maybe the mask might be the side impact airbag. It's just going to add maybe a little bit more, you know, yep. uh, hey, extra protection in certain circumstances. But hey, Bob, where, where are we? Where is the industry in terms of these? A lot of these developing countries um, that are you know not receiving adequate supplies of doses. I think Covax and think things like that. Where are we in terms of trying to ramp that up? Yeah, well, you know, outside of the, the, the wealthier middle-income countries, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're definitely behind. We're not where we need to be. I think, you know, I'm trying to look at the numbers we had in the story. Was it some, like, you know, dismal? Yeah. The COVAX initiative delivered just 140 million doses so far, the 1.8 billion it aims to ship by early 2022. And, you know, one problem, you know, is that there have been there's a lot of uh, uh, dependence on supplies from India for COVAX. And some of those, once the India, India had its own surge, some of those supplies were delayed. So, yeah, it's, it's quite far behind. So that means there's, like, gigantic continents full of people like Africa that has gotten just, you know, just, uh, just you know, a tiny percentage of the people vaccinated. And that means if you just continue to transmit and transmit and spread and spread and spread, and, you know, who knows? No one can predict what kind of mutations it'll produce, you know, if you give it billions or more chances. Yeah, that's my nightmare, that these that the unvaccinated are going to be able to incubate this thing into something else. And on that note, we got a, a, a headline from Moderna crossing just a few minutes ago saying that, they're facing delays in producing the vaccine outside of the U.S. And I think, you know, what 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 people fail to realize is you think about your hometown, you think about your own state, but there are whole countries that have yet to hit 20, 25 percent. So we've really got to get this vaccine out to the rest of the world. Bob Legreth writing The Big Take. Check it out on NI Big Take. This is Bloomberg. I want to bring in Lynn Franco now, Director of Economic Indicators and Surveys for the Conference Board. And 
We just had some consumer confidence uh, data that was better than the street had anticipated. Um, came in at 129, the uh, index consumer um uh, the Conference Board Consumer Confidence Index came in at 129, spot one. We were looking for 123, spot nine. It was also better than the previous reading of 127, spot uh, three, revised to 128, spot nine. A lot of numbers there. But the, the point is, consumers are more and more confident, Lynn, even as, well, certainly um, the media and governments are freaked out by the Delta variant spread. How do you... How do you uh, square that circle? Well, at least for the time being, uh, the Delta variant doesn't seem to be having a negative impact on consumer confidence. In fact, we're you know holding steady, strong and steady. Uh, and indications are that the third quarter is off to a solid start. So we're expecting another good quarter of economic growth. Uh, and consumers expect more of the same in the future. So both in terms of their current assessment and their expectations, I think we're holding strong and steady. Lynn, talk to us about the uh, the labor side of the equation. It's, we still have a lot of Americans that are out of work, yet there are, you know, a, a almost a record number of job openings out there, and there seems to be jobs for people who want them. Talk to us about how the the labor market factors into your index. Well, we take a look at the question, uh, you know, consumers are telling us right now that they believe jobs are plentiful. We had a little bit of an uptick in that percentage from last month. Um, so it's been going in an upward trend, and the percentage of consumers telling us uh, jobs are hard to get held steady. And, and just to put it into perspective, only 10.5% of consumers in July said jobs were hard to get. That was at 228 in January. So we're making progress on that front. And looking ahead, they do expect these trends in the labor market to continue. We have uh, an uptick in the percent who said they expect more jobs over the, the next six months. Um, so that, I think, bodes very well, not only for consumers, consumer confidence but for spending as well. We know that consumers have saved up, or at least on average, the savings rate is higher. Are they ready to spend that down, or do you think consumers are still concerned um, about a future crisis? Well, we do see a willingness um, to spend, right? So our spending intentions, uh, you know, whether it was for homes, autos, or major appliances, uh, ticked up. I think the flip side of that is, as we've mentioned, is, you know, then you've got some supply issues at hand, you know, whether it's uh, home prices going up and lumber shortages or, uh, you know, shortages of home appliances, uh, autos as well. So there's a willingness there. I don't think the supply is just uh, quite in line with the willingness. Uh, but we expect those supply chain issues to dissipate uh, by year end. Um, but it looks like, at least from the consumer's point of view, they are ready, willing, and able to spend. So, Lynn, talk to us about the housing market. It's been so strong through the entire pandemic. But now there's, I think, an issue, you know, there's just not enough housing stock available. How, do, how does the housing market uh, factor into the data that you guys look at? Well, we are seeing a bit of an uptick in the percent of consumers who uh, would like to purchase a home over the next six months. Uh, you know, but again, you know, as you mentioned, we're just dealing with sort of, you know, housing shortages. There's a price uh, uptick that's, you know, pushing some folks into the rental market. Um, so I think until these two get aligned, uh, we'll probably continue to see housing uh, cool off a little bit, uh, but still overall remain relatively strong. I'd like to see um, my dream scenario is that Paul sells his house, then the bubble bursts, and, exactly. then, I, and then I can find one <laughs> to buy. Um, what are your 
what's your take on the virus? Or, or we already talked about the fact that consumers aren't letting the Delta variant spread concern them right now, but they surely must be on edge. I mean, after such an unprecedented time to see things like, um, you know, mask mandates coming back. Well, that sort of is the wild card in all of this, right? Uh, if we dig in to see some, uh, you know, return to restrictions, uh, that could dampen uh, consumer confidence or it could be very sort of localized. So, for instance, you know, we've seen a bit of a downtick in consumer confidence in, in California, uh, in Florida this month, while New York hit a new all-time high. Uh, so it could be very localized and uh, all dependent on what happens with the Delta variant. But for the most part right now, it's not negatively impacting consumer confidence. Hey, Lynn, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it, as always, getting your thoughts here on these data points coming out of the uh, conference board. Lynn Franco, Director of Economic Indicators and Surveys at the conference board, joining us on the phone from New York. And it's interesting, Matt, the, you know, as Lynn was mentioning, kind of the regional uh, nature of some of the data that they see, uh, some of the states that have, you know, rising infection rates, seeing a little bit of a hit to confidence. I guess that that makes plenty of sense. Uh, on the other hand, New York, yeah. who has done you know, quite well with the vaccination effort, seeing uh, high confidence. You know, I think one, I think a lot of Americans forget how big America <laughs> is, yep. you know, coming from Europe where uh, a landmass that is smaller has, you know, um, more than a dozen different countries. Yep. It's always shocking to get back here and see that um, this massive country is always thought of as, as, as one block, especially when you're looking at things like consumer confidence or things like housing. So exactly right. Right now, I want to get over to William Kai, co-founder and partner at Wilshire Phoenix, to talk about uh, what's going on with commodities and, I guess, their digital counterparts. Will, thanks so much for joining us. Let's talk first about gold because, um, well, I love to talk about Bitcoin, but I've noticed that gold is headed for, I think, its first back-to-back uh, -back monthly drop since 2015. Uh, it's a it's a rough year for gold, 1802, and we kicked off the year, I think, around 1950. So um, as inflation concerns build, why isn't the price of gold? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Uh, definitely. I mean, gold... Anything that happens this year is going to pale in comparison to last year, right? 2020, when, when the, the COVID pandemic and the monetary and fiscal policy, the, the, the strong monetary and fiscal policy that has driven the price of gold up. I think currently gold is in, especially uh, in the first, first half of this year, in a healthy consolidation period. Look, we think the, uh, the, most of the drivers are still price driver is still in place to support gold's pricing. But the, the limelight or the spotlight somewhat shifted from gold and some of the stories and drivers between you know, FX and U.S. dollars and, and uh, real interest rate has been, has been kind of battling in terms of uh, driving the gold price up and down. But we do, we do believe that inflation is here to stay and uh, it's going to sustain its price. So uh, let's be patient on, on the gold price. We think a, a retest of its, uh, of its highs in 2020 is, uh, is still possible in the next several months. All right. So well, let's talk a little bit about Bitcoin here again. It's up, uh, you know, up about 1% today, back uh, above 38,000. The volatility continues. Give us your sense of... But so much for the crash. So much for the crash. It's got that 30,000 level. It's a really good support level. How do you think investors should view Bitcoin in the context of a diversified portfolio? 
absolutely. I mean, Bitcoin, in any other market, you call it a crash, right? But you know, when I was talking about gold, almost apply here to Bitcoin in terms of consolidation. Um, it's, uh, it is a pullback. But what's, uh, what investors and everyone should know is that the, the space itself in terms of uh, crypto and blockchain remains very strong. Uh, you see continuing ad- um, adoption by inst- institutional space. The big banks are finally getting in here, whether it's Goldman Sachs or, or J.P. Morgan and their clients. Their clients is, uh, is asking for, for, for crypto exposure. So well, crypto and Bitcoin becoming cycles, right? Um, and I, I think uh, we, we have Wilshire. We don't provide price targets and, you know, the long term. But we think there's a huge long term potential in Bitcoin and the crypto space uh, as overall. With Bitcoin, I get the scarcity issue. Um, hmm. you, you, you know, there only ever be 21 million tokens. But a lot of the other um, crypto platforms, which look so promising, you know, like Ethereum, I don't understand why I need to own multiple tokens. Why does it matter if I own a lot of tokens if I can just do everything I want with one on the platform? So, Bit, uh, I guess two, two, uh, two, two points. First of all, if you're as an investor, if you want to get exposure to, to the crypto space, for now, getting exposure to Bitcoin is pretty good because there's still quite high kind of intracorrelation um, between the, the different assets, right? So if you have exposure to Bitcoin, you probably don't need so much of uh, Ethereum or Litecoin and Bitcoin Cash and all these altcoins because Bitcoin currently is the dominant asset and the bellwether for the space. But to your, to your question about um, why do we need so many different uh, different cryptos? There are nuances between the different assets. Um, crypto, Bitcoin was created. No, Will, I, that, no, that I get. I'm just saying, like, for example, the Internet. Uh, what's it called? The Internet. Um, the Internet. There's it, Ethereum is one platform. There was another one called the Internet Company or the Internet Platform. I Don't can't. know. Don't you remember this? I do not. Okay. All right. In any case. Interplanet. The, file system is, is IPFS potentially, but anyways, go ahead. My my point is, you've got these the internet computer. Sorry, okay. I don't know why I just blanked on that. I loved uh-huh. the idea of the internet computer, which was basically like spreading the cloud around the world, and it was going to put AWS and and uh, Microsoft out of business. Sure. I I love the platform idea. I love the technology and um, the blockchain, but. I didn't get why I would need to own too many tokens. I don't understand why I care about owning a lot of Ether. Uh, as sure. long as I have one, I can do what I want with Ethereum's technology, right? Right, right. But this is the same, same argument will be, uh, I guess, an example would be for stocks, right? Um, you argue, why do I just need, maybe not company specifically, but let's say, you know, browser. Why do I need uh, Chrome when I already have Internet Explorer? There, so each of these different platforms do pitch themselves potentially as different or better or do something else a little better. So we do see competition. So right, there's a bit of healthy competition, um, just like in the, in the tech industry. You, know, you have different uh, Intel versus AMD. And I have Intel. Why do I need AMD? Well, okay, they have uh, different, slightly different value prop- proposition, different growth and uh, fundamentals and so forth. Right. 
Hey, Will, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Will Kai, co-founder and partner of Wilshire Phoenix, talking a little bit of gold, talking a little bit of Bitcoin. Again, gold up uh, just fractionally right now, about $1,800 uh, per ounce. Bitcoin up again about 1% today, uh, 368 uh, points, 38117 for Bitcoin. Now, you were just hearing about UPS from Greg Jarrett sinking further uh, this morning uh, in the market um, on its margin forecast, operating margin forecast for the second half, suggesting it's going to be lower than the level seen in the second quarter. Allison Poloniak-Cusick joins us. She's director of equity research for transportation industrial technology over at Wells Fargo. Allison, what do you make of the earnings? Hey, well, good morning, and thank you for having me. Um, I would say, taking a step back, earnings were solid in the second quarter, and even though the margin performance is slightly below where we were anticipating, it's still quite a solid outlook for the back half of the year. Um, Keeping in mind, you know, I would say historically, what we have seen as sequentially, you know, a lower margin in the second half, keep in mind as we're building to the peak shipping season. You know, another thing I think investors are overly focused on here is really the slowing of that B2C volume at this point in the cycle, you know, as things start to reopen here. But overall, we believe UPS is still, you know, working on track um, to deliver what uh, CEO Tomei had put out in terms of that uh, profitability over revenue here for UPS longer term. So, Allison, where is the margin pressure coming from here? Where, where are they really feeling it in their income statement? Uh, you know, we're focused specifically on the domestic margin. And as you can imagine, as you're delivering for peak, you know, we've all seen those signs, UPS looking to hire uh, for delivery expectations in the back half. So I would say partly due to your traditional historical peak buildup, you'll see a greater uh, cost pressure for UPS. You know, and also, much like many other companies that have reported, uh, wages have increased, right? Uh, there's certainly labor challenges that are out there today that have been well documented in the market. So um, in terms of the rest of the, the industry, we've had a really bullish outlook from airline chief executives, but it doesn't really jibe with the rest of you know, what we're seeing in terms of the Delta variant and uh, you know, talk of masks coming back. How do you view the economy, the reopening play? Well, with UPS, I would say they, they benefit both sides. Uh, you know, you look to last year. Uh, in the midst of the pandemic, which is another reason why the, the volumes are slowing here in B2C, is we were looking to e-commerce to deliver anything local market, toothpaste and such. Uh, as the economy reopens, you know, we don't need to do that anymore, right? We can run to the store and, and grab our toothpaste. But keep in mind that UPS also delivers to the retail uh, brick and mortar. So they will benefit, right, from that reopening play. In terms of the Delta variant, I would say we haven't heard too much impact at this point in terms of those demands, and it doesn't appear to be something that UPS is building in in terms of elevating that, that B2C. I will never go back to the store to buy toothpaste, <laughs> i got to tell you. There's, there's some stuff. I don't know why toiletries seems like, why do I need to get that at the grocery store, you know? I'll you get have- fresh produce. Yeah. But okay. I don't need to pick out my Colgate or Crest. So when we see the boxes on the front y- front yard, that's toothpaste for you. And yeah. Well, okay. everything right. that isn't that isn't fresh, I can just order it. There's no reason yep. to to truck it home. So Allison, it's are are is, are the UPSs of the world? Are they talking about and the FedExes a a structurally higher kind of cargo you know flow for them unit volume because there are people like Matt who are just you know, maybe during the pandemic became increasingly used to delivery? 
Absolutely. Um, there has, you know, there's certainly that talk of that structural step up in, you know, the e-commerce demand, and EPS is certainly benefiting from it. I would say part of it's really just, you know, there's it's twofold. It is some of those. There are people that are actually going back to the store to get their toothpaste. Um, <laughs> Paul, you know, probably. but on on top of that. UPS is being very disciplined, right, in in terms of what volume it wants to take on to its network, right? Going back to CEO Tom A's comments on focusing on profitability over just plain revenue and volume. So I think there's two pieces to that. But yes, absolutely, that structural step up in B2C has certainly been noted. I mean, you, you don't you don't just cover UPS. You like Norfolk Southern. You like Canadian Pacific. Um, it, it looks like, in general, you're bullish on these... Uh, you know, shipping, rail, um, companies that you follow? Absolutely. And a big piece of that is, you know, we've had that uh, consumer recovery, right, that's been noted. But as you take a step back, industrial has been slower to start, and there's certainly been some noted supply chain challenges, labor challenges. But we see the trend line for an industrial recovery as a net positive, and that would benefit certainly the rails and to a lesser extent UPS as well. Hey, Allison, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate getting your thoughts on UPS. Uh, the stock is down 8.7% today, so spooking the market there with their earnings. Uh, Allison Planiak-Cusick, she's Director of Equity Research. She covers transportation, industrial technology, all that fun stuff, the supply chain, the backbone of industrial transportation for uh, Wells Fargo Securities. And, uh, and, Matt, and my first job on Wall Street was a, a research assistant doing rails and trucks and all the transportation stuff. So it's a lot of fun and it is literally the backbone of this uh, you know, U.S. industrial economy. Do you know what I miss? Uh, blimps. I wish blimps would come back. I would travel by blimp. It you would travel so by cool. blimp? When I was a kid, um, well, when I was in my th uh, early 30s, <laughs> late 20s, there was a, a company, Cargo Lifter, that would... Um, that was going to try and transport stuff also by blimp. They went bankrupt, of course. But. Yeah, what happened to that? All right, we'll, get, we'll take, take a look at that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.